Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're really actually going to finish up what we started last week. And last week we were talking about the canon, the canon of Scripture. We really uh, basically ran out of time last week, so I'm going to finish it up. Um, I know when I thought about the issue, of can, uh, the issue of canon last week and as we got into it, I was surprised that there wasn't, um, I think, more questions about it. I don't know if it's because we had such a big class. Maybe people were afraid to ask questions. But I want you to ask questions if you have some. I want us to try to work through some of this stuff because the issue of the canon and the issue of what books are supposed to be in the Bible and do we, in fact, have the right ones is, is a very important topic. I mean, it's very foundational because every day we come to church and we preach from the Bible um, under the assumption, I think, that we have the right books. Um, so I want you guys to be grounded and, and have confidence that um, you, have, you have some knowledge, at least a basic starting point of, 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 in your mind, how to ground the fact that we know that we are, in fact, preaching the very words of God. And it's not um, a random, it's not accident, um, it wasn't uh, some powerful group somewhere in church history who picked which books they wanted and everybody else had to succumb to their decision uh, we want you guys to be assured that you have the words of God that he wants you to have in your hands even right now, um, even today, uh, as, we, uh, as we get the, the word preached to us. So I thought what I'd do is, as we really just finished up the Old Testament last week, I thought I'd review just some major points from that. And then I really want to get into the New Testament uh, more, more in depth than we did. Um, so let's start off with to see what you guys got from last week. Because this is really, even some of the guys who, like Michael Kruger, you've heard us reference him several times. He, he does a lot of work on the canon. Even he says that this is like a, a, a hugely neglected um, aspect of study, even among scholars. For some reason, uh, the issue of the canon has really not been addressed and given the, the time and study that it should. So what does canon mean? Does anybody remember the definition of the word canon? Because like, here's the... Wow. Is somebody taking notes or is somebody just on point? That's, that's perfect. Kanon is the Greek word and it means rule or standard. Yeah. Rule or standard. And so that's what we're looking at when we talk about the canon. We're talking about what is the rule, meaning what is the measuring rod of, in our case, when we talk about canon, uh, what is the, the word of God, the rule or the standard? Um, we didn't last week, but I wanted to show you all just uh, to get a grasp of this meaning of the word. It's actually used in the New Testament. Turn to the book of Galatians. You can actually see this, this word used in Galatians chapter 6 at the very end of, of Paul's letter to the Galatians. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 and 16. Here Paul's been uh, describing something that we'll actually look at today in the sermon, but just this, um, this idea of what is the gospel, what isn't the gospel. In verse 15 he says, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but what matters is a new creation. And then in verse 16 he says, And those who will walk by this rule be peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So in verse 16, that's our word there. Those who walk by this rule, 
this standard, this teaching, that's the word kanon, that's the word that we get for canon. And so I, I just thought it was interesting that it's actually in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians as well, it's mentioned. But here we just see, like, it's this teaching, this standard of teaching, this standard of doctrine, this is the rule that the church is to follow. And so in the same way, canon is the rule of what is Scripture and what is not Scripture. Um, I think it's very useful and necessary to understand the process that the church went through in recognizing Scripture, uh, discovering what the Scriptures were, as Emilio uh, distinguished. Uh, it's not something that the church determined. It's something that the church <clears throat> discovers or recognizes. Um, because, like I said, we want to know what is inspired and what's not. And even though today we're going to get into some of the issues of how did the church go about discovering these things, because uh, it was definitely a process um, at the end of the day, when all the dust settles, um, you can rest assured that even if you can't figure out the ins and the outs of how the early church picked this book and not this book, um, you can rest assured that God is faithful to give his people his word. You know what I mean? I think that kind of led, and I think people rest in God's faithfulness, and that may be why a lot of people haven't studied canon. They just say, we know God's, you know, God's given us his word. We, it's obvious. We know it. We trust God to do that. Um, and then that's true, we should trust God to rest assured, but there definitely is a means by which God uh, distinguished his writings that he wanted us to have as scripture and what isn't supposed to be scripture. Uh, last week we, we covered mostly Old Testament issues. Um, I definitely want to get into the New Testament because I think um, as you go along, and, and most of this comes from, I think, interaction with like others outside of Christianity usually, usually comes from evangelism. It usually comes from you uh, uh, trying to share the gospel with others who don't believe like we do. Uh, this is where the, the questions and challenges come up. And as you'll notice, as you, as you hopefully are doing this throughout your life, that the New Testament canon is what usually gets challenged the most. We really don't get a lot of challenges um, to the Old Testament canon. Uh, not as much as the New Testament canon. I mean, it's very popular these days. I mean, there's TV shows, History Channel programs, and most of that's aimed um, at the New Testament canon, so I definitely want us to, to get into that. Um, because as we saw last week, even historically, the Old Testament canon was never really uh, debated. There was ne there's not a lot of discussion historically, compared, comparatively to the New Testament, um, for the Jews about what was the Bible, what isn't the Bible, what was the scriptures, what wasn't the scriptures. There wasn't a lot of questioning of this. I think um, there's some good reasons for this. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, we'll look at the first reason. I think the first reason that the Old Testament scriptures were so um, carefully managed and that the people of God knew what was scripture and what wasn't is because in the Old Testament, scriptures were predominantly written by the prophets of God. The prophets of God. And so, with that being said, to be a prophet of Yahweh, to be a prophet of God was no small thing. To stand up in Old Covenant Israel to say you were a prophet of God was nothing to trifle with. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 says, this is what God tells the people of Israel, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, 
or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So right out of the gate, um, you know, it, it's a very different situation than I think, you know, in a lot of evangelicalism these days where people are not afraid to speak on behalf of the Lord and say, thus says the Lord. Back then, if you said something and it didn't come true, guess what happened? You were stoned. So people were, did not trifle with the word of God. And, you know, Israel definitely had times of unfaithfulness. But as far as, you know, being willing to uh, put something into the canon and say that, the word of, that it's the word of the God was definitely, uh, definitely something very serious to the people of Israel. Um, how, about, how about for the New Testament? Uh, we, we likewise have a warning that comes actually at the very end of our scriptures. If you want to read Revelation... Revelation 22.18, maybe a lot of you are familiar with this one. At the very end of the New Testament, which I don't think is a coincidence. You know, um, well, let's, maybe we'll read the, the text before I even get into that. It's found in Revelation 22.18. Here John says, <coughs> and I think this is, this is actually the Lord speaking in Revelation 22.18. Who's speaking in Revelation 22:18? I think this is God. I mean, this is this is God. Verse 16 says, "I Jesus, right, have sent my angel to testify to you to these things to the churches. I am." So this is, this is actually Jesus speaking. In verse 18, he says, "I testify to everyone who hears." This is verse 18 now. <clears throat> I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that the plagues written about in the book of Revelation are nothing you want. So again, just like in the Old Testament, the warnings are, is nothing to trifle with. Adding to the word of God, saying that you're speaking on behalf of God is nothing, nothing light. Nothing light. Um, so our New Testament ends with that strict warning. Um, let, me, let me just read this one to you so you're not flipping back and forth. Uh, because as I said, the Old Testament began with the, uh, the same type of warning Moses gave in Deuteronomy 4 2. He said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God which I commanded you. So right out of the bat, the commandment uh, from Moses was not to add to these words. Not to add to these words. Um, let me see here. What it, I think um, it was brought up last week at the very end, right before we ran out of ran out of time, um, because as I said, I think the Old Testament canon was very the canon was very settled. Um, I think that that there wasn't much discussion about it. I think the only exception to that ends up being the apocrypha. I think the apocrypha is kind of a kind of an issue that we that we want to deal with a little more fully. Last week, um, the question was raised. I think. Chris Shaw raised the question of the Apocrypha and why. Uh, why do the Roman Catholics accept the Apocrypha? Do y'all y'all remember what the Apocrypha is? It's it's books that were written after Malachi and in between Matthew in that time period there. Um, but Roman Catholicism actually has actually put some of those books, some of those writings, into their canon. Um, and this comes up a lot if you're ever witnessing to Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, they all have these books in their canon. And so this, this issue can come up. Um, 
So why, why are these writings included in the Roman Catholic Bibles and not in ours? Um, they actually get included within their Old Testament section. Um, and when you talk to Roman Catholics, they don't use the word Apocrypha like we do. Not normally. The word Apocrypha means hidden or obscure. That's what the word means. And so we obviously are giving it an, actually a negative connotation, but they, so they don't call it that. Does anybody know like what a Roman Catholic would refer to as the Apocryphal books? They call them the Deuterocanonical books. Deuterocanonical. What does Deuteronomy mean? Second law. So what does Deuterocanonical mean? Second canon. Second canon. That's what they, yeah, that's exactly um, how they, they look at it. Um, so why? Why was the Apocrypha added by Rome? I think it might help to realize and to think about when it was added. When it was added will lead you in the right direction. It was actually added in 1546. 1546, and it may even help you more to realize where this was and why. It was, this was added at the Council of Trent. Council of Trent is a Roman Catholic council. Um, what was going on at that time? Why was the Council of Trent even held? Anybody know? Jason, feel free. You know why the, you know. No, what? I mean, there's, it depends. I mean, there's several reasons. I mean, it, that's kind of at the height of the Reformation. Yep. So. The Council of Trent was held as an anti-Reformational meeting. They were actually gathered to refute everything that had started. What year did, did Martin Luther post his, 95 Thesis. I don't know. I'm actually asking that one. It was like 1520s, I think. 1519, something like that. So the Reformation was, it was in full force, spreading like wildfire. And the Council of Trent uh, met to actually oppose the teachings of Martin Luther in the Reformation. Um, if you go read through the canons of the Council of Trent, you'll see all these doctrines of uh, anathematizing anybody who holds to justification by faith alone. They actually condemn to hell anybody who believes that you're saved, that you're justified by faith alone. That was, that was put into, uh, what would be the word for that? But that's what they deemed as being truth at the Council of Trent. So it was an anti-Reformation meeting. And so the Apocrypha was also added at the Council of Trent to directly oppose the teachings of the Reformation, which is primarily justification by faith alone. Those books that were added from the Apocrypha have um, several statements that include uh, things that would attribute to works righteousness. So Rome, it was helpful for them to add those things. Yes, sir? I find it interesting, though, in debating or, or witnessing to a Roman uh, Catholic, mm -hmm. I rarely have ever had anyone bring up the Apocrypha or quote anything from that book. If it helps their stance, I wonder why. I mean, maybe it's just their lack of really diving into Scripture, but I find it odd that they never, I've never had one actually use a verse out of the Apocrypha. Right. Well, most Roman Catholic arguments I have don't have anything to do with Scripture whatsoever, mostly. Yeah. They're usually not arguing some from Scripture. Yeah, yeah, some do. Some do. Um, that's right. That's right. Yes, sir. Do you have some? Yeah, I was just going to touch on that. I mean, uh, when it comes down to it, it uh, they, they typically, their argument is about confession or doing good works, not necessarily about Scripture. And uh, that, that very rarely, unless you're talking to a Catholic apologist, is not going to necessarily come up. Right. And, and I was going to tack on to that. Um, 
<clears throat> some Catholics would actually argue that good works are not works righteousness. You're not. Uh, they would affirm the term of saved by grace through faith alone, mm -hmm. but they would say that doing good works is a grace from God. Right. right. So how, how, well, well, what how a lot would of Catholics, we unmuddy the waters with that? We would unmuddy the waters with what they've said at their councils, like for instance the Council of Trent. Right? In the canons of the Council of Trent, they literally anathematize anybody who believes that you're justified by faith alone. I think it's Canon 19, I think it explicitly yeah, it says that. Yeah. So, yeah, Roman Catholics, just like a lot of Christians, will confess a lot of things and say they believe a lot of things. I'm talking about, if you're saying you're Roman Catholic, let's look at like what your church actually teaches, which, which is supposed to be, if it's coming from the popes, you know, the it's word of God, it's, it's supposed to be law. Um, yeah, so a lot of times I'll, I'll hold to that. And I would hope that they would say something like, well, yeah, I don't really believe that works are for justification. And I, that's good that they, if they really believe that, but if they do believe that, they're not agreeing with what their church says. So... That's usually, that's usually how I approach that issue. Um, so the Apocrypha, as I said, why don't we accept the Apocrypha? Why do they have it? Um, why does the Orthodox churches have that and we don't? Well, I think primarily just from what I just said is that they have theological heresy in them. Um, and so from that we know that it's not inspired by God. All Scripture has to be inspired by the Spirit of God and the Spirit's not going to contradict Himself. And so if something contradicts what... What uh, scripture says, yes, sir. Well, last week when Pastor Milo mentioned that Jerome added it to his Vulgate, was it more of an optional thing prior to 1546? It wasn't optional. Um, a pope actually demanded that he add it, okay. and Jerome fought it. Really? Okay. Jerome did not want it. He said, you know, he told him, write us, who's the greatest scholar that there is? Well, Jerome's the greatest scholar. Well, the pope says, I want Jerome to write us a, a Latin version of the Bible. And he says, I want you to in include the Apocrypha. People knew about the Apocrypha. Um, it was actually in the Septuagint, but um, Jerome said, well, I'll do the translation, but I'm not going to include the, the, the Apocrypha. The Pope said, no, include the Apocrypha. And his, so he did. But even in that, he notes that it's not canon. It's other, other writings um, not deemed worthy. So, yeah, even Jerome, I mean, yeah, a lot of Roman Catholics would probably, well, Jerome put it in, you know. But even Jerome didn't want to put it in, in there. Um, what else? Uh, maybe that as you read the Apocrypha, if you do, um, the Apocrypha, as you'll notice, do not even claim to be the word of the Lord. Like the Old Testament prophets, they don't claim to be speaking the word of the Lord. They're, they are, as you read through them, just historical accounts um, of what was going on uh, with the Jews in between Malachi and in the time of Jesus. Um, and what I think is also interesting is that even in, even in the Apocrypha, for instance, the book of 1 Maccabees, if you may be familiar with, with that title, even in the, the, the book of 1 Maccabees, in, in, internally in itself it recognizes and states that the prophets ceased. That there was no prophets even at the time that the Maccabees are writing their own writings. You know, so there's even internal evidence that they recognize that the prophets had ceased. Um, maybe just... Maybe just one reference to that is, is 1 Maccabees 4, 44 through 46. What had happened during this intertestamental time was that the, the uh, temple had been profaned uh, by the Gentiles. 
And uh, verse 46 in First Maccabees says, And they stored the stones. After they, they had to tear down this altar that had been defiled. It says, that, So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. So at the time of the writing of First Maccabees, there was no prophets. The people of Israel recognized this. As it was the time of, of the silent time that, that God was not speaking in Israel. And so even internally in, in the book of First Maccabees, it... The writer there recognizes that um, that there were no prophets speaking for God. So it's kind of ironic that that gets included. Uh, maybe another reason is that the Jews never accepted the uh, Apocrypha in any of their, uh, as canon. Never did the Jews accept those writings as part of the canon. Um, historically, the writings of Josephus, maybe you all are familiar with him. He's a Jewish historian that wrote in the first century. Um, here's a quote from him. He says, from Artaxerxes, which is, was a, rule, a reigning ruler at the time of Malachi, the, the last writing of the last book of the Old Testament, he says, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So even he recognized, he's making the same point that the Maccabees did, that the prophets had ceased. There was nobody speaking the word of the Lord. Um, from Malachi uh, to the time that even Josephus wrote. Um, so, so yeah, so two things we notice there from Josephus is that there were no prophets, and uh, because of this, the writings of the Apocrypha were not deemed worthy to be Scripture. But most importantly, I think, most importantly why we don't consider the Apocrypha the Word of God, I think one of the, the, the most settling uh, reasons why, and I think Jason touched on this last week, um, is that Jesus, nor any of the apostles, accepted the Apocrypha, nor did they use it, nor did they quote it as being the word of the Lord. Jesus, nor the apostles, ever quote this in the New Testament. Um, there's never any debate. When you read through the New Testament Gospels, there's never any debate amongst Jesus and anybody that he's talking to, any of the, any of the Jews. There's no debate on what was the Scripture and what wasn't. The Old Testament was firmly settled, and there was no arguing about it. So... That just kind of wraps up, I think, um, Old Testament canon, really, with the issue of the Apocrypha. I think that's probably what you'll have to deal with, um, you know, as you talk to Roman Catholics, probably especially. Um, so let's get into the New Testament canon. Um, how did the Old Testament end? How did the Old Testament end? Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Let's turn there. Because here we see a break. Malachi being the last, the last book of the Old Testament, um, it leaves the people of God waiting. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, here it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. And behold, I'm going to send you... Elijah the prophet before the great before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. So the Old Testament ends with an expectation of descending of Elijah the prophet with the coming of the Lord. Um, so does anybody remember a New Testament reference to this reality having taken place? The coming of Elijah the prophet? That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. You know, they asked about the coming of Elijah. Jesus said that he has come. 
and he was talking about John the Baptist. Now, how does all that work out? I don't know. That's, that's a difficult issue, but that's what Jesus said. So we say, okay, yes, that was fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist, this, this coming prophet with, who had the same message as Elijah. That's probably how most deal with that and what Jesus meant. Um, the same message that Elijah had is what John the Baptist had, and that was that the Lord is now coming, get ready. The Lord was now coming, get ready. So that was the gap from Malachi with the last words of Malachi. The gap ended with the coming of, of Jesus. The coming of Jesus um, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, okay, the prophet spoke the word of God. Who, spoke the, who speaks the word of God in the New Testament? Who's given that responsibility um, of writing and, and deeming what is and what isn't scripture in the New Testament? That's right. The apostles. The apostles. Maybe you don't have to turn there. You all know it. John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. Um, that, that was being spoken directly to the apostles at that time called disciples. But um, that promise that the Spirit would bring to remembrance all of the things that Jesus Christ did and taught and said, this was given to the apostles, to the apostles. And so it's because of that promise and because of that reality that they were able to, to remember, to write, to recall, to interpret everything that Jesus said and did. That's what we have in our New Testament. It was given the apostles to be able to remember those things. And I would say, as we would have to accept, and they would also have the responsibility of approving other writings as scripture from some who were not apostles. Um, we'll see how that, that comes into effect. Um, I think as we think is what, what are the qualifications for New Testament canon? You know, you listen to, if you listen to a lot of people, everybody has the slightly different lists on the qualifications for books on whether they should be canon or not. Um, but I think what is the easiest way for you? What, what is the one thing maybe you could take away um, to help you in your mind deal with what is canon as far as a New Testament perspective and what is not, the easiest thing to think about is, is this book apostolic? Is this book apostolic? And, and, and just by thinking about that, as we work through some of maybe some of the other things that people add to the list, you'll see they all flow out of whether a book was apostolic or not. Um, so what does it mean to be an apostolic writing? Well, what it ends up meaning is that this letter, whatever you're looking at, has to either have been written by an apostle or it would have had to have been approved by an apostle. Because there are letters in our New Testament that were not written by apostles. And we'll actually look at that. Um, but to be apostolic, it would have definitely had to uh, have been approved by an apostle. They would have had to approve that these writings were inspired by God. Um, so maybe let's just go through some of these other lists that people have, have come up with. And you'll see how they, they all relate to the apostolicity of a book. Um, maybe another qualification is people will say that it must be first century. All of our New Testament canon writings are, are first century documents. So that would go right along with um, it being apostolic. If somebody tries to include a book from like the third century, you know that an apostle could not have written it nor affirmed it. So it's kind of outside of the bounds of, of being apostolic at that point. So it must be a, a first century document. Um, you know what? Let me, let me jump to another 
reference on that point because I think it's important to know. Okay, so if something had to be first century uh, to be apostolic, another interesting point, I got this from uh, uh, Michael Kruger, but it's an interesting thing to realize is that every first, the only first century documents that we have, that we even have record of, is our 27 books of the New Testament. There are no other first century documents. There's no other first century Christian writings than our New Testament. It's an interesting point. I mean, you can do several things with that, but I guess that's something I never realized before. You know, I mean, that's why, that's why I love Michael Kruger. He points things out like this that nobody's ever said before. It's common knowledge, I guess, but he frames it to make sense, to help you. There is no other, no other writings to even deal with. That alone right there, doesn't that shed off so much of the clutter and all these other accusations? What about this Gospel of Thomas? All these other things that, are not, that nobody agrees are first century. The only first century documents are uh, the 27 books that we have. I think that's very interesting. Um, the other thing we kind of talked about, and this also affected the Old Testament, is that you must take into consideration the analogy of the faith, meaning um, any writing you're considering to be canon must agree with the other scriptures. There cannot be anything heretical in it. There cannot be anything that's contrary or contradictory to what is already uh, deemed scripture. Uh, so that's the analogy of the faith. Also, many will include uh, the writings needed to be widely accepted by the church at large. That's kind of subjective because there were books that went through a process. So many people wondered, I wonder if this book is uh, inspired by God. I wonder if this one is, is or, in, or not. Um, but widely accepted by the church at, at large is another way to um, deem whether, the, whether this was, in fact, uh, meant to be in the scriptures. Another point that Michael Kruger makes that I thought was interesting is you can see this as you study. Uh, usually people can see this as they study like textual criticism. As you're studying the earliest manuscripts that we have, what you notice is that the early Christians uh, basically started something new. They made codices, which were books. You know, the Jews made scrolls. They, all, everything they read were off scrolls. The Christians, the early Christians actually made codices, which were books. They formed their writings like this with books. So they would stack a bunch of pages, fold them in half. All the early Christian writings that we have are, are codices, they're books. So that's different. And so what you notice as you look at all the early records of these codices that we have is you can very quickly distinguish what the church was considering to be the word of God and what wasn't. You know what I mean? You see just the consistency of the books that we have, the 27 books that we have. Those were grouped together. There would be some scattered others, but... He says just by looking at all this data cumulatively, he's like, obviously, these were the books the early church was um, holding in a higher regard because of how they were grouped, how, how often they were together, and what was excluded um, from this grouping. So, that, so that's another thing. But um, even with that, even with what the church um, would have deemed collectively as canon or not, I think all of that, just to settle in your mind, to make it easy, Think about how this process would have gone down. You had apostles in the early church going around, instructing the churches, directing the churches. I mean, they were explaining the faith. They were explaining um, what was the word of God, what wasn't. They most surely were doing those things. I mean, think about it. The apostle Paul, as we know from 2 Corinthians, he wrote other writings. But those other writings were not kept. They were not um, obviously deemed scripture. Paul may have instructed them. That is not scripture. 
So we see what was, what was kept and what wasn't. So I think the apostles were doing this work of, of instructing of what is Scripture and what's not. Um, so uh, it has to be apostolic, as I said. Uh, you know what, I even want to write that down because I think that's, that's pretty much the issue. Um, it means it must be apostolic. And I, and I explained that that doesn't mean that it has to be written by an apostle. It also me, could mean that it needs to be approved by an apostle, and that's important for several reasons. Uh, which books of our New Testament were not written by apostles? Luke. How many do we know? Luke. Acts. Luke and Acts, yeah. Luke and Acts, we'll put those together. That's right. What else? Who else was not deemed or even named as an apostle in the in the New Testament. Mark, right? Mark. Yeah. Since we don't know, would Hebrews be grouped in that? Hebrews would be grouped in this. Yeah. One more. It's a little guy. Philemon. Philemon was written by Paul. Jude. Jude. You got it. Jude. Okay. So what we need to determine, if these were not written by apostles... Why are they considered canon? Why are they considered apostolic? Was it Mark collection of Peter's writings or something to that effect? Something to that effect, that's right. I think I've heard that. That's the answer. Um, so it wasn't even Mark really writing it per se. It was just him collecting what Peter either said or wrote. Yeah, I mean that's kind of like uh, people look into that and wonder how that worked out, what the relationship was between Mark and Peter. But we do know, I mean, it's in the book of Acts. You see the relationship between Mark and Peter. They're together. They, they, Mark's with, uh, you remember the scene with uh, Paul and Barnabas and Mark abandoning them. But, but we see the association in the book of Acts uh, between Mark and Peter. Even in 1 Peter, uh, Peter mentions Mark. So that's the association that we have. Mark was associated with Peter, uh, yeah, like, Chris is saying, even in the, the Gospel of Mark, um, most people believe that the information that he's writing is what he got from Peter as he ministered with him in the book of Acts and Peter's teachings. Yes, sir? I was just going to say, if, if someone mentions the term synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right. that's why they were called that. That's yeah. why I am being together with an eyewitness. Yeah. Yeah. The, synopt the synoptics. Yeah, another thing is you, is you study like the early... early uh, manuscripts and the codices from the earliest point Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, boom together you know it's just if you lay it all out and look at it as Michael Kruger saying when you look at all this information what you have there is a fourfold gospel from the very beginning it's, it's, it's amazing from the earliest times they were grouping they already recognized that these were the the writings that tell us about Jesus and that was what was uh, prized and, and, and honored the most were the gospels at first um, what about Luke and Acts? Who would have given apostolic affirmation to Luke and Acts? How do we know this wasn't just some crazy guy? Paul. Right? We saw that in the book of Acts as well. All the association from what was it, Acts 16, Acts 16 onward, they call the we section of Acts. That's where, as Luke was writing the book of Acts, he starts saying, we went and did this. We went and did that. We went and preached here. Luke was with the Apostle Paul through a lot of his missionary work. So, yeah, Paul affirms Luke. Paul affirms Luke. How about Jude? Who is Jude? He's the brother 
brother. He's a brother of who? Uh, Jason Jesus. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what is, the, what is the introduction to the book of Jude? He says, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He's a brother of James. James is likewise a brother of Jesus. Um, James was the leader of the church in, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, so Jude would have been attested um, not only to his relationship of Jesus Christ because he's his, his brother, he's also the brother of James um, who ministered with Peter. Um, so I would probably put James with, uh, with Jude. Now, we save the best for last. The book of Hebrews. Out of all the books, this is the most difficult um, because we don't know who authored the book of Hebrews. So therefore, um, we don't know for sure that Paul wrote it. Many, many thought Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I'm going to show you why I don't, I don't think it could have been Paul. Um, but the book of Hebrews, we, because we don't know who wrote it, we also don't know what associations this writer would have had um, with an apostle. Right? That's kind of a hard one. The book of Hebrews. Yes, sir? Um, one of the theories that sounds pretty good at least uh -huh. uh, is that Luke wrote down a sermon of Paul's because it's written very much like a sermon would be delivered. Mm -hmm. And that seems pretty plausible. Right. Especially the way that it is written. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of similarities between the writing of Hebrews and the writings of Luke. They're the most intricate, the, the, the toughest Greek you're going to find. The, what was Luke by, by trade? He was a doctor. Some people attribute that to why his Greek is so hard to understand. It's such at a high level. Like when you translate John, it's okay, Bob, this is easy in the beginning. Like, you get that. I say it's easy. It's not that easy. But um, Luke and Acts and Hebrews immediately... It's just a completely another level. It'd just be just like some people who articulate the English language way better than others. You know what I mean? Um, the same thing. You can see the difference. So there, there is that connection in the in the um, degree of, of difficulty of their writing, the intricacies of some of the language. Um, that's right. Uh, yeah. The the hypotheses never end um, with who wrote Hebrews. Like I said, some think Paul. Um, there's, there's a lot of guesses on that. We, we just don't know. Even from the very earliest times, Origen wrote in the 3rd century. Um, he said nobody, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. So from the earliest times, they were wondering. Um, but I definitely know who knew. It was the early church. We just don't have any record of how they, you know, of who it was. But we know it was there, and we know because, I think, of how everything else is confirmed. We see what makes something apostolic and what doesn't from all of the other books in the New Testament. We see that it either had to be written by an apostle or it had to be somebody that an apostle knew. And so when we have the book of Hebrews, we say, well, obviously the same thing happened. It was either written by an apostle or somebody that knew an apostle because that's how the New Testament canon was, was deemed to be scripture. And so I, just because we don't know the details doesn't mean that that's not what happened. Um, but it is hard just because of the lack of of external evidence and internal evidence. Um, Chris. Yes, sir. Uh, how early did the church pretty much recognize its canonicity? Canonicity. Or 
Well, the hard thing about that is that we didn't have, I mean, what we did third, fourth century, we started having these councils come together and declare, yes, this is canon, yes, this is not. Before that, this was a very fluid work. I mean, like when you read through the book of Acts, you can imagine in your mind like how this went down. Like the Apostle Paul's traveling around, he's writing letters, he's saying, send this letter to this church, this letter, you know, they make copies. It wasn't like people were saying, this is the list of canon, this is, you know, or not. It wasn't that cut and dry. It's very difficult. Uh, but, but, but I can assure you, even with the book of Hebrews, and this may be uh, another reason that some people think that it was written by Paul, was the very earliest codices we have of Paul's writing is known as P46, Papyri 46, earliest documentation we have of Paul's writings. Um, there's 14 letters in it. How many letters did Paul write? He wrote 13, and guess what was included with it? The book of Hebrews. From the very first, earliest record we have of Paul's writings, some, they were lumping Hebrews in with the Apostle Paul's writings there. Um, and so, it's not coincidence that the other 13 books were what we have as the canon. You know, these lost books of Corinthians were not in there. The books that we have in the canon were what were collected at the earliest times. They even included in P46, for instance, the book of Hebrews. Um, that's what was the date that's pretty that, interesting. On that manuscript? It's like 150, 150 AD. It's very early. Within 100 years, pretty much. Within 100 years, pretty much. So somebody thought, that doesn't prove that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, but it proves most likely whoever grouped those together thought he did, you know. Or at least, or at least uh, gave his approval. Or at least gave his approval. Yeah. Yes, sir. I was going to just ask, this is a harder question. It can't get any harder, it can't get any harder than the Hebrews, so. Well, let's say um, Christians accept that Mark is in the canon. Okay. But then the question is... What is accepted, the shorter or long version of Mark? Okay. And how do we come to that conclusion? Um, I want to hopefully deal with that, because that's a different question than canon. Canon is which books? Well, the reason why I ask is okay. someone will say, well, if you take away <laughs> from the shorter version, then you're taking away from the Word of God, the very canon. If you're adding to it, then you're adding to the Word of God. Sure. Uh, that's why I would still keep it within that canon. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an important question. I actually want to do the whole class next week. I want to get with Emilio on this, but I think I'm doing Sunday School next week. And if I do, it's a related topic. It's textual criticism. So with canon, we're really trying to figure out which books should be considered canon. Textual criticism is a maybe an offshoot of that study, and it's which words inside those books were originally written. The long ending of Mark, yeah, we'll, we'll, hopefully I want to get, I think that's an important topic that we rarely get into. I only got to mention this or that as we went through Acts and Galatians and stuff like that. Uh, but maybe, let's hold up on that. It is, it is a very important question. Um, but with the book of Hebrews, let's just end with this. Uh, maybe another thing to tack on to your list of how do we know what should be in the canon and, and what's not. I think Jesus' words um, can help us with that. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We know, because of the Spirit of God, um, not infallibly, but collectively, the Spirit of God has worked to affirm what is Scripture and what is not. You can't read the book of Hebrews and, and think this is not Scripture. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, the book of Hebrews is the, if I had to pick any, I would pick the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's just the glory of Christ. It's what the book's about. Um, so 
I think that the Spirit's attestation to all of these books as we study them and as we read them just, just calls out that they were, in fact, um, scriptural. Um, let me see here, as we have just barely any time left. Um, maybe, just, maybe, just a couple, maybe just a couple more things here, um, real quick. We'll do, I guess since I'm preaching, it's okay if I run late, huh? That's all right. Um, <laughs> let me just keep, keep rolling with this. Look at uh, 2 Peter. Turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Because here's an interesting text. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Because what we have here is an example of Peter giving attestation to the Apostle Paul's writing as Scripture. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter says that Paul's writings are Scripture. Uh, let's read 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It says, In regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, and here it is, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Right? That's, very, that's a very important phrase that, that Peter's saying about the Apostle Paul's writing, because he's using a very special word. The word scriptures. That's the, that's a, scriptures is a translation of the Greek word graphe, which is only used to speak of Old Testament writings that are that are God breathed. All scriptures, all graphe are God breathed, Paul says in, in Timothy. So um, this word graphe, it's used 51 times in the New Testament. Every time it's used to refer to the Old Testament scriptures. It's always quotations and references to the Old Testament scriptures. And guess what Peter does? He lumps Paul's writings in with the Old Testament scriptures. It's amazing. And so there we have Peter giving attestation to the Apostle Paul's writings, which is most of our Bible, most of our New Testament, I mean. Let's look at one more example of this. 1 Timothy. Because this isn't the only time this happens, even within the can, even within our writings. 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. This time we see now Paul. Paul's been affirmed by Peter. Now Paul's going to affirm Luke's writings. 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I didn't just bring that up for any reason. Uh, here's, here's why we're studying this. For the scripture says, there's that word again. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Again, he referenced it as scripture, graphe, and what is it? It's a quote from Deuteronomy 25. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. A, a quote straight from the Old Testament. And now look what else he says. And what else does the scripture say? The scripture also says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, where's that found in the Old Testament scriptures that Paul's quoting here? Where's that... Because Paul said it's scripture. He said he's quoting scripture. He says the scripture says the laborer. Hmm? It's New Testament. Luke says that in Luke chapter 10. That's a quote directly, word for word in the Greek, of 
Luke's writings, um, he's quoting the words of Jesus, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so then again, we see now here Paul using that word graphe, a technical term for God-breathed scripture, and he's quoting Luke. He's quoting the writings of Luke, which if you actually look at, what did Luke write, just two books? If you have to actually look at how much of the New Testament, he actually wrote more by verses than anybody else. That's how much Luke wrote of our New Testament. So Paul affirms him. And his writings are scripture. They are canon. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, Chris. Yes, sir. On the flip side of that, would you say, because I know some people would say, example, um, within Jude, it mentions Enoch. And so some people will say, because Jude mentions Enoch, we should then accept the book of Enoch. Yep. What would you say to that? Well, so that's a good question. What Jason is bringing up is that Jude quotes another writing, another early writing, um, the book of First Enoch he quotes. And the reason we don't say that that's Scripture is because Jude doesn't say that it's Scripture. Notice what Paul and Peter just did. They called these things Scripture, God breathed. Um, Jude is just quoting another book to make his point. Right? Paul does the same thing in Acts 17. He quotes some... Yeah. So, so they quote other writings, but they're not calling them scriptures. They're just making a point just like we would if we quoted Calvin's Institutes or whatever. We're not saying that's scripture. We're just making a supporting point with it. Um, so they're not deemed scripture. We have to go, but let's co close on this. And, and Brother Robert, I know you brought this up last week. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Because the canon is closed. The canon of scripture is closed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll see, we'll see why we believe this. Because the Mormons don't. But we'll believe why, why we don't believe that these revelations they're getting um, are Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And so there's definitely uh, days that, that uh, the writer, I almost said Paul, that the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is um, when, past tense, God has spoken to us in his son. And so this is speaking of the times of Jesus, the times of the apostles. Um, this is the last days that um, these writings were done. Uh, maybe one more. I think I have a better one than that, actually. Uh, that's the one Grudem uses, and that's Hebrews. I think I got even a better. How about Jude? Go back to Jude. This is what I like. Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Right? The faith was once for all handed down. It's not continually being handed down through other scriptures. Jude says, I'm contending for this faith that was once for all handed down. The being handed down of the revelation of Jesus Christ is done. Right? I like, I like that one. I hope you like it. Uh, but so, yeah, so we think the canon is closed uh, because, of the, because of these statements. It was expected that this was the time that Jesus came. This is when he gave the revelation of God. And this is when he assigned uh, the apostles to receive the Spirit in such a way that they could write Scripture.
that they can recall the teachings of Jesus, that they can interpret the things of Jesus and attest others who were writing and, and whether their writings were scripture as well. Amen?